Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given to us all that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. That you've given to us great and precious promises that through them we can become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We are so grateful, Lord, and yet you told us that we should cooperate and add to our faith virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control, that we would not be lacking anything. Lord, I pray that we would not become weary in well-doing, and one of those well-doings would be studying and applying your word. Many of us, Lord, are mature in the faith, and we've heard all these things so many times. We can memorize them. We can teach others. And yet we realize the importance of exposing ourselves continually to the truth because we do forget important lessons that we once remembered or that we once read, and we need to be refreshed. And I pray, Father, that you would do that comprehensive work tonight, that you would equip us for the battle, for the task. We do look forward when we stand upon that shore and all the battles all are over. But until then, we pray, Lord, that you would equip us for battle mode, and that we would be equipped to give it to every man an answer for the hope that lies in us. Lord, I pray also that you would lead those whose walk with you is a little tenuous or non-existent to a place of surrender, thus a place of serenity. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has a task. His task is the cross. Nothing is going to sway him from that task. He knows he has a little bit of time with his disciples. So now, going from Galilee, through Perea, a little bit through Samaria, and on down into Judea, Jesus will use the opportunity to train his disciples, to teach his disciples. Some of the lessons, he's told them already. But like us, they forget. Peter was among the ranks of the disciples, and we remember Peter's epistle. When in the New Testament he writes to us, to his readers, but also to us, he said, I am going to remind you of things you already know about. You already know these things and are well, well established in the present truth, but as long as I have this fleshly body, I'm going to tell you anyway. Then I'm going to even write it down. So after I kick the bucket, you're going to have the truth deposited. So it, you'll always be reminded of it. And there are lessons that we need to learn and be reminded of. When I was going through school, there were times that I liked school, and there were times, a lot of the time, when I hated it. And I just put up with it. And I was, um, well, my brother and I sort of had a reputation in our high school. And uh, it's not that I had anything against learning. I did pretty good grade-wise, but I just, I was rebellious. I didn't want to sit through class, and many times I just skipped altogether. Now I get to learn, as I see my son, who's only nine years old, he'll bring home lessons. And, you know, listen, I learned these things when I was his age, but there's a lot of things that you forget. Even elementary things. And part of me thinks, man, I don't want to help him out doing this. This is his job. But the other part of me thinks, I get to learn these things all over again. Where was I when that lesson was handed out? <laughs> only God knows. 
Now, there are spiritual lessons that I have to learn all over again, and sometimes I'm ashamed that I have to learn them. I think, I should, I should, this is baby stuff. Why don't I know this? I, 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 I learned this years ago. Either I'm not applying it or I just forgot about it. Now, there are, if I were to sum up this chapter, four lessons that Jesus teaches his disciples. In the first few verses, he talks about forgiveness. That's a lesson we all need to learn and be reminded of, isn't it? We're often mindful that God forgave us, but we forget that we should forgive others. We feel like we have a right to hold a grudge. And so we need to learn the lesson again. That's the first lesson. The second lesson Jesus teaches in this chapter is faithfulness. Being faithful to the God who called us without wanting recognition for it. Mention my name, Jesus. I'm important too. The third lesson is thankfulness as illustrated by the ten lepers whom Jesus heals. And nine of them didn't thank him and one Samaritan did. And the final lesson is the lesson of preparedness. Being ready for the coming of the Lord. Are you ready? Are you looking forward to that event? If Jesus came tonight, are you packed and ready to go? Or do you have your fingers and hands and a few things and you think, well, I'm not quite ready yet. I'm involved in some things I shouldn't be involved in. I hope he doesn't come for a while. Or do you think, well, there's other things that I want to experience before Jesus comes back. I had a lady tell me one time, I hope Jesus doesn't come back for many years. She was single and she wanted to get married. She said, I want the joy of being married before Jesus comes and takes me away from that joy. I said, well, what do you think heaven's going to be like? A torture chamber? Don't you think heaven's going to be like so beyond earthly joys that it's really unimaginable? But her concept of heaven is, oh, you know, who wants to sit around playing a harp? Hey, listen, I'm not going to be playing a harp. I might be playing an electric guitar, perhaps, but a harp, no. I intend to be very active, as the Bible, I think, declares. Anyway, let's read uh, the lesson of forgiveness. He said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now he talks about stumbling. Man has a sinful nature. We live in a sinful world. It is inevitable that there will be sin, that there will be the practice of it, and that by the example of some... Others will fall into it. So while sin is prevalent and unavoidable, there is the personal responsibility to the one who causes somebody else to sin. The inevitability of sin because of the sinful nature is declared, but the responsibility for the person who causes it is also given in the same verse. Now, in verse 1, the word that Jesus uses is offenses. The Greek word is skandalon, which means a bait stick. A bait stick that was put in a trap that would get the attention of animals, and the animal would come to the trap smelling the bait stick or the stick that held the meat. 
And he would go in and grab the bait stick, thus he would be ensnared by the trap. The word skandalon eventually came to mean a stumbling block put in somebody's way. And here it means a stumbling block towards sin, causing somebody else to sin. There is something worse than just going to hell yourself. And that is causing other people to go there as well. How horrible to go at all. But indeed, how horrible to see somebody there and you say, how did you get here? He says, I followed you. You were my father. I watched your example. You were my brother. I just watched your life and I did what you did. Jesus said it would actually be better for that person if he had a millstone. Now, a millstone wasn't a little private grinding stone. That was one kind. The other kind was the mule kind. And that was a huge round stone, sort of shaped like a tractor tire, that went in a huge stone track and it was tied to a donkey. And the donkey would walk around in this perimeter and this huge stone weighing several tons would grind the millet or the wheat. Some of the millstones you can see in Israel today in Galilee and Capernaum, they have a few of them. Up on the kibbutz where I lived, I have a picture of me standing next to a millstone, and the millstone is taller than I am. I'm six foot five. This thing was about seven foot six inches. So when he said that, they understood what he meant. It's like, whoa, that's heavy duty, Jesus. I mean, that sounds mafioso. You know, it's like, it's be, it'd be better if you'd case him in cement and toss him off a bridge. That's the idea. Than for him to offend one of these little ones. Um, go back to chapter 15 for just a moment and look at probably who he's referring to when he says little ones, not just kids, children. But it says, verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Probably by their words and example, they drove off some of the seeking little ones, young believers, tax collectors, sinners, but they've made a profession in Jesus Christ. And probably since the context of this story begins in chapter 15, that's who he's referring to. These young believers who have been caused to stumble by the example of the religious leaders, in this case, the Pharisees and the scribes. So they understood what Jesus meant when he said, tie a millstone around him. It would be better if you threw him in the sea. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should, and the word, the idea, scandal on one of these little ones. Now, we as believers also have a responsibility not to cause somebody else to sin. That doesn't mean necessarily, uh, you know, if somebody says, I don't like what you did. So? But if by your example you are causing them to indulge in sin, then you have a responsibility to cut out what you're doing. I am often asked the question, what about the gray areas of the Christian life? Or put another way, somebody will say, can a Christian do this? Can a Christian do that and get away with it and still be saved? I never like questions like that. They're asked with the wrong motivation and wrong heart. 
In other words, what can I do to barely get to heaven? I think the question ought to be, how can I serve God to the utmost of my being? That's a better question than what can I get away with and still make it into heaven by the skin of my teeth? Well, Paul the Apostle, by the Spirit of God, gave three rules for Christians to go by. They're both found in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Three tests that you can judge gray areas. Somebody says, can a Christian drink? I tell them this. Scoop, can a Christian drink? I say, hey, I drink all I want. I don't want to. I don't want to do it. Well, why? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient or helpful. That's test number one. Is it helpful? The idea is, does it push you along your goal to be like Christ, to spread the kingdom of God? Is this helping you along? Or is it hindering you? If it's not a wing, perhaps it's a weight. And if it's holding you back and not expediting you in your growth to Jesus Christ, why even do it? Why is it important? Secondly, in the same verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it's verse 23, I may be mistaken, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So the first test is the test of usefulness. The second test is the test of control. Is it controlling you? Do you have to do it? Has it become a habit? I can control it. It doesn't affect me. Well, if you are bound to it and it is controlling you, cut it off because now you are the slave. But there's a third test found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All things are lawful for me. I can do anything I want, but not all things edify or build up others. That's the test of love. That's the test of love. Now that is explained by the apostle in between chapter 6 and chapter 10 over in chapter 8. The whole issue is, can a Christian eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol? That was a big issue in those days. Because Christians, some of them felt okay if they went to the temple, bought meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god, they'd take it home, barbecue it, and eat it. And Paul said, I have no problem with that. But there were some, he said, who had a problem with that. And so Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 8, concerning those things which are sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing. We know there's only one true God, and all the false gods are just false gods. But he said, not everybody has this knowledge. And they, you have, he said, in your midst, weak people. Weak-minded people is the idea, but they're brothers nonetheless. And they would get all upset. You can't do that. I don't feel the liberty. So Paul said, imagine how it would be if they're walking by the pagan temple and they see you in there at the meat market buying some of the meat that's been sacrificed to a pagan god or goddess. And they become emboldened to eat something that is against their conscience to do. You have caused your brother to perish. Paul said, if that's the case, I won't eat meat that's been sacrificed. So I won't do it if it's going to cause them to stumble. Now, imagine how it would look if you walked by a bar and you see Pastor Skip sitting, slamming a Coors. And I'm singing, I've got the liberty, you've got the liberty. (laughs) 
Now, would you, what would you think? Some of you would say, all right. Man, I've been trying to tell my wife for years it's okay. He's doing it. I'm going to go do it. Even though in your conscience you might feel it's wrong. What an example that would be, though. What a horrible example. Praise God. (laughs) Certainly drunkenness is against the Bible. But just because of the appearance of evil, and the Bible says avoid even the appearance of evil. It's going to appear to be evil. Forget it. Don't even do it. The test of love. Don't cause a brother, even if he's weak, instead of saying, well, he's just a weak Christian. Well, then if you're strong, you ought to consider the one who's weak. And be strong by your example of love. Now, the next follow-up question would be not only if you sin, but what about if you're the one who sinned against? That seems to be the question anticipated by verses 3 and 4. Not if you're the one doing it, but if you're the one sinned against. Well, it's a whole different ballgame then, isn't it? It's one thing if you're the offender, but if you're the one offended. Sometimes we have a different set of standards. So, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, how do you rebuke him? Do you do it in public? Do you do it in a crowd with his friends and go, Excuse me, you sinful turkey, you. I've been waiting to get to you for a long time. You do it privately, Jesus said first. You go to that person alone. And in the spirit of love, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, you rebuke him gently and in love. See how he responds. If he repents, forgive him. Jesus said, if he sins against you seven times in a day, And seven times a day, he returns to you, and he says, I repent. Now, after seven times, you may be tempted to say, hey, you're just saying it. I'm not going to forgive you. You've got to demonstrate repentance. But Jesus didn't say that. He just says, if he says to you, I repent, you are to forgive him. You shall forgive him. The rabbis used to say that a perfect man is a guy who can forgive his brother three times. And they sort of had the baseball philosophy. Three strikes, you're out. But if you could forgive a guy for three offenses, you are a perfect man. What Jesus does here is he takes the rabbinical standard, doubles it, and adds one. But the idea isn't let's keep a list going. For in the Gospel of Matthew, he said... 70 times 7. Now, again, you don't keep a list. Okay, 149 times. Okay, one more time. And I'm going to smack him. For it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. So, if he says, I'm sorry, forgive me, you are to forgive him. And the apostles' response in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. You know why they said that? It takes tremendous faith to obey this command. You've got to trust that God will take care of that sinning brother and all of the consequences against you and to just trust God and believe by telling him that you forgive him. It takes faith. 
So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, a mustard seed, Jesus already talked about in the parable of the mustard seed. It's a small seed in the herb garden, but it grows into a large bush, and the cardal, which is a species of the mustard seed, the common type, grew to a large tree. The idea about mustard seed faith is that though it is very small, it grows into something very large. Though a mustard seed is small, it has life. And because it has life, it is growing and bearing fruit. So too, if your faith is true living faith, it will grow and produce fruit. It could be very small, but it will be growing. You will be going from glory to glory, and you will be bearing forth fruit. Now, I don't think the idea is that you should be going around plucking trees up and getting them transplanted. I think that this is to be taken as a metaphor. It was a very common phrase. You can look back in Jewish history and find many rabbis who said the same thing even before this time. In fact, the Jews, when there was a teacher who they thought was a gifted expositor to unravel tough biblical truths, They called him a pulverizer of mountains or an uprooter of trees. You say, no, I think it really means you can really move trees. Well, did Jesus ever move trees this way? Does the disciples ever move trees this way? Can you give me one instance in church history ever where somebody changed the landscape around, moved mountains, moved trees? Is that the idea behind it? I mean, that'd be a great way, a great feat for landscaping. Listen, I wouldn't spend the money we spend on getting trees. I'd just go out there and... Oh, there it is. The idea is persistent faith, like the faith of a mustard seed, that hangs in there and continues to bear forth fruit. It doesn't give up. It's persistent. It's small, but it produces fruit and has life. Uh, Remember a story a few chapters back about the friend who knocks on his friend's door at midnight and bugs him. He's asleep. He's got his wife and kids in bed. And his friend is knocking, saying, give me some loaves of bread. Jesus said, I tell you assuredly that he will not answer the door and give him bread because he's his friend, but he'll do it because of his persistence. And then in chapter 18, the very next chapter over, he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart, saying there was a certain... In a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard men. There was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God judge, or avenge, excuse me, his own elect who cry out day and night, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You've got a small widow and a great judge, but she is persistent, like that small mustard seed. Verse 7, the second lesson begins, the lesson of faithfulness. Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep, 
will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come in at once, sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper. Gird yourself, serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what is our duty to do. It was very common in those days for even a person of meager income, or I should say medium income, to have at least one servant. Servants were very common. And this servant seems to be a jack of all trades. He's out keeping the sheep. He comes home and prepares the food. He sort of does it all. Now, Jesus is setting up a scenario, and he's sort of telling his disciples, can you imagine the unimaginable? Can you imagine a slave after working all day? Would his master, after a hard day's work, say, oh, listen, you've been working so hard. Sit down. Let me take care of you. Now, we know Jesus did this. He, being the master of all, served us, and he washed his disciples' feet. He became a servant. But it was unimaginable to think that a master, an owner of a slave, would say to his slave, let me serve you. No, he'd say, hey, cook me my dinner, man. And when I'm done, you being the slave, you can have whatever you want. Or will he thank him and say, oh, Listen, I just want to thank you for being such a good slave. Now, they knew the custom of the day, and to them that was unthinkable. It was as if they would say, of course not. So likewise you. Now he's drawing the spiritual analogy. When you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. Jesus was getting at the attitude of serving him. You can serve the Lord with a good heart, or you can serve the Lord with a bad attitude, a bad heart. What, what's a bad attitude? Well, one attitude would be serving him slavishly. That is, well, I have to do it. It's my duty, and I'm just going to do it. I don't want to do it. I hate this job. I hate this work. But I'll love you for Christ's sake and do what he wants me to do. But I hate it, and I want you to know it. I say, don't do it. If you can't give hilariously or serve hilariously, listen, God has a lot of other people with good attitudes that will do it. So one bad attitude is to serve him slavishly. Another bad attitude is to serve him meritoriously. That is, to get a reward. I'm going to serve him to get. R.G. Letourneau, I quoted him last week, Sunday morning. He was the guy who built the big earth-moving equipment like we have next door, these huge earth-movers. It was his grand design when he first came up with those things years ago. He was a Christian man, and he wanted to give his money for the Lord's work. And in fact, he ended up tithing, not even tithing, tithing means 10%. He gave 90% of his income for the Lord's work and kept 10% because he made so much. He said, I don't need to live that lavishly. So he gave more away. 90% of his income was given to the Lord's work. He said, if you give to get, or you give because it pays, then it won't pay. If you give because it pays, it won't. 
Now, there are some people who think, yeah, I'm going to give my seed faith gift because I know that when I give to this, that God will give me more back. Now, God will bless you when you give. That's a standard biblical spiritual principle. But if your motivation is selfish, in other words, well, I'm going to give so that I can get more. It's a wrong attitude. Or if you serve to be commended for it. Listen, there are some people who will not serve God unless you mention their name. Put it in the bulletin. Put a plaque up. I donated this money for this wing. Put my name on your school. Put my name on your parking lot. I want to be recognized. Anybody gives with strings attached, I'll say, listen, there's a lot of other places you can give it, but not here. Why didn't you thank me? Why didn't you recognize me? We should say, rather, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what is our duty to do. The idea of saying that I'm an unprofitable servant, you say, well, that's pretty demeaning. There's no self-esteem in that one. You got it. The idea, however, is not that I'm worthless because he was a profitable servant. I mean, he cared for the guy's sheep and he made his food, so he was profitable. The idea in the original language is my master doesn't owe me anything. I'm his slave. He doesn't owe me. God doesn't owe you anything. Some people go through like, God owes me. Excuse me. You owe a debt that you cannot pay. And he paid a debt he did not owe. Yours. He paid your debt. God doesn't owe you. You will always be indebted to God. As a servant. So instead of having the wrong attitude saying, how come God didn't recognize me? How come my name is not up in lights? How come these people don't pat me on the back? Hey, you're serving God. We have done what is our duty to do. That's the lesson of faithfulness. Now the lesson of thankfulness with the ten lepers. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So he's left Perea now, the eastern area On the east side of the Jordan River, he's back over in the central portion of the land, going through the area of Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a certain village. And there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. Well, how far off? Well, by law, you'd have to stand about 50 yards. You'd have to cry, unclean. You'd have to cover your mouth so as not to spread the disease. You were a social outcast. So far off, they cried out, not unclean, but notice the request. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Oh, they knew his character, didn't they? They knew that Jesus was merciful. They knew that Jesus had compassion, that he loved to heal. And so when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. So it was as they went. They were cleansed. Let me first of all tell you something about healing. I don't completely understand it. I don't. And I don't get along too well with those who say they do. They've got their box, nice, neat little theology of God must always heal whenever I claim it. They think they totally understand the ways of God and healing. I don't. I've seen God heal people. I have received literal, physical, bona fide healing. 
And I've watched other people miraculously healed. I've seen it. I am not a dispensationalist. I don't believe that God used to do it in the early church. Well, he doesn't do that anymore. God can do whatever he wants whenever he feels like it. And sometimes he feels like it. And I love it when he does. But I don't understand it. Because I've prayed for some people and I've watched them get better. I prayed for other people and I've seen them die. And I thought I had as much faith. I thought they had as much faith or more, a lot more than I had. A woman came in, she said, I know that when I when you pray for me today and the elders pray for me, I'm gonna walk out of here in perfect health. She didn't. It's hard to understand. Especially hard to understand when you see wicked people who enjoy perfect health. And you wonder. This bothered David, this bothered Job. You're not the first one it bugged. It almost destroyed and overturned David's faith in Psalm 73. He said, I almost had it. On my feet and my steps almost slept when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But I've learned a few things, and I've kind of summed them up into four things I've noticed about the way Jesus healed in the New Testament. Number one, when Jesus healed, he was sovereign in his timing. He was sovereign in his timing. Why was that woman with the hemorrhage of blood for 12 years? Why was that guy 38 years an invalid by the pool in Jerusalem? And why was it that Jesus stepped over all the rest of the people who needed a healing and just healed one? And what about the guy at the gate beautiful who was placed there every day? He was an invalid. Jesus had to have gone through the gate beautiful. From what we know about the way he walked into the temple and where he went and and just from the gospel record, that means Jesus must have passed that man when he went in. But Jesus didn't heal him. But Peter did. God did, actually. Peter was just the vessel. But God is sovereign in his timing. God has his time. Secondly, God is sovereign in the conditions for healing. That is, there's not strings attached to it. You say, oh, no, it's those with great faith. Well, sometimes it was. Other times, I don't think there was any faith displayed in the person getting healed. Was the man at the gate beautiful, filled with faith? Hey, man, give me a handout. Peter said, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And Peter had to pick the man up. I don't think that man had a tremendous amount of faith. Peter had faith. There's no spiritual prerequisite in the healings of Jesus. There's ten lepers here. It doesn't say they all were filled with faith in godly men. There was one, a Samaritan, an outcast of Israel. It's the one Jesus commended. Sometimes there were unbelievers. Sometimes it was somebody's son or daughter or servant. No spiritual condition attached all the time. Thirdly, he is sovereign in the limitations of his healing. Sometimes Jesus touched a person. Sometimes he just spoke a word, healed from a distance. And when Jesus healed a person, did that mean they'd live forever? Well, they had to eventually die. And why was it that Peter was released from prison and James wasn't? They both were prayed for by the early church. It's all according to God's sovereign plan and purpose. You can say, oh, I understand it completely. I confess to you, I do not. Fourthly, healing of Jesus Christ is sovereign 
in his, the nature of the disease in which he healed. As I read the New Testament, I don't read of Jesus ever healing a common cold or a flu. As I read the New Testament, he healed impossible to heal diseases. The deaf, the blind, those with leprosy and were outcasts, those that could not be cured at all by physicians. The impossible cases. Those are the ones at least recorded that Jesus healed. Those kind of afflictions. I found a little thing I wanted to share with you by uh, David Watson. He said, I believe in the church. That's the name of his book. God does not always choose to heal us physically. And perhaps it is all well that he does not. How people would rush to Christianity and for all the wrong motives if it carried with it an automatic exemption from sickness. What a nonsense it would make of Christian virtues like long-suffering, patience, endurance, if instant wholeness were available for all Christians who are sick. What a wrong impression it would give of salvation if physical wholeness were perfectly realized on earth while spiritual wholeness were partly reserved for heaven. What a very curious thing it would be if God were to decree death for all his children while not allowing illness for any of them. Good insight. So here's ten lepers. They come to Jesus Christ. They say, have mercy on us. And Jesus has an interesting response. Go. <laughs> Wait a minute. Jesus isn't supposed to say that. He's supposed to say, oh, come unto me. Let me physically touch you. Sometimes he did that. You know, there is no pattern. Have you noticed that? Jesus doesn't have a usual method of healing. A one, two, three, shazam. He didn't blow on them every time. He didn't throw his hands at them every time. He didn't wave himself. Sometimes he touched them. Sometimes it was at a distance. One time he spat, made mud, stuck it in the guy's eye and said, Now go wash your face. One time he touched a guy and the guy wasn't completely healed. He touched him. He said, what do you see? He goes, oh, it's blurry. I see men. They look like walking trees. Jesus touched him the second time and he was healed. Here, they were healed in a process. As they went, they were healed. That's interesting. You remember uh, Naaman, the Syrian, 2 Kings chapter 5? He was that great nobleman from Syria, but he had leprosy. And there was a girl in his house who had been taken captive by the Syrians. She was an Israelite girl, and she saw Naaman, her master. And she said to his wife, oh, man, I wish we could get Naaman over to Israel. There's a prophet there who would touch this guy and make him better. His name is Elisha. It was told the king of Syria. The king of Syria sent a forwarding letter to the king of Israel with Naaman. And he said, uh, here's 10 talents of gold and 6,000 shekels, uh, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. Now, heal Naaman. The king of Israel read the letter. He tore his clothes. He said, am I God that I can make somebody well or kill them? And he thought, this guy's just trying to pick a fight. Well, Elisha heard that the king was ticked off and ready to fight and tore his clothes. So he goes, hey, Relax, chill out. Uh, send him to me so that he may know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman the Syrian with his entourage comes to the house of Elisha. 
And he stands out in front of the house, expecting Elijah to come out. Elisha didn't even go out to him. He sends a messenger to him. and The messenger gives him the message. He says, Elisha said that you're to go to the Jordan River and dip seven times. At this, Naaman was livid. He was angry. I came all the way from Syria to go dipping in a river, a muddy river. Aren't the waters of Damascus much better than all the waters of Israel put together? And he was mad. He started riding away. And he said to the guys with him, he goes, you know, I, I expected at least him to come out and stand over me and wave his hands, you know, like all the healers do, and, and speak some great words over me. But he didn't even do that. He says, go dip in the river. And the servant of Naaman said, if he would have told you to do something great, you would have done it. How much more than just go try it, go in the river and dip seven times. Jordan River was a muddy river. If you've ever been to Israel, you can sink up to your waist in it. So there's proud Naaman off of his horse, dips in the Jordan River once, comes up, all muddy. People look at him going, look at Naaman, he did it. But nothing happened after one time. Then he went down, came up, went down, came up, went down, came up, five, six. He's thinking, this stinks. This is ridiculous. But he went down the seventh time and he came up and his skin was completely as clean and it was restored to him and the leprosy was gone. That was an act of faith to go into the Jordan River. And it was an act of faith for 10 lepers to go to the priest. Because Leviticus 13 says, here is the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. You will bring him to the priest. So they had the faith to even go to the priest and say, yeah, Jesus, says, uh, Jesus sent us here to have you, have you check us out. We're supposed to be healed. And so the faith that it took to turn around and go to the priest, they went there and they were healed as they went. Beautiful story. Now one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. How do you act when you're touched by God? Thanks, God. That was cool. I've been sick all my life. Nice to be healed. Can you understand the emotion behind this guy with a loud voice? Yes! Thank you, Jesus. I, I am not for emotionalism, but I sure love seeing a joyful Christian express himself or herself. I love it. If it's really sincere. I don't like it, but it's fake. Nobody likes painted fire. It didn't warm anybody. But when it's real and it's sincere, it's beautiful. The loud voice he gave thanks, he glorified God, fell down at his on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Oh, what is a Samaritan doing with these nine other guys, presumably Jews? The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? But it's interesting how pain and suffering can bring people who would be enemies together. It is said that when there's a forest fire or a flood, often animals who in their natural habitat would be natural enemies will congregate together without attacking one another because of the mutual trouble that they're facing. Well, here they're together. They've been drawn together by their suffering. There's no barriers. There's no walls. 
Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. How much like the other nine so many are. Those who want the gift but not the giver. Who will not return and give thanks to God. I wonder if the ratio has changed any. I think that's probably about the ratio. I think of all the benefits we receive, probably just a tenth of us are really thankful and would render thanks for what God has done. You remember the hymn, Now Thank We All Our God, with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done in whom the world rejoices? That was written by a pastor during an episode in European history called the Thirty Years' War. When, as a pastor, on some days he was doing as many as 40 funerals a day, including the funeral of his own wife. And he wrote that as a table grace for his family to give thanks to God in the midst of a very dark period of history. Now thank we all our God for the blessings that they had received from his hand. Arise and go your way. Your faith has made you well or literally has saved you. Nine had the priest say, you're cleansed of your leprosy. Jesus said to this one, your faith has saved you. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, I've got to just throw, throw in something here, chronologically. Somewhere between these events, the whole chapter of John 11 fits. Jesus is making his way down to Jerusalem. He's in Samaria. He's crossed a little bit over into Judea. At that point, he hears a message. Somebody says, your friend Lazarus is sick. You've got to go see him. Your sisters want you to come quickly. And he stayed and didn't come. Finally, Lazarus died, and he tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead. We've got to go to Judea. And the disciples go, let's not go to Judea. They wanted to kill you last time. Thomas says, ah, let's go down to Judea and die with them. Jesus gets down there, and Lazarus is dead. He's been in the grave three days. He opens the tomb, or the tomb is opened. He commands it to come forth, and he's healed. That happens uh, between these episodes, either between verse 10 and 11 or uh, 19 and 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, or literally outward show. Nor will they say, See here, or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. I wish the Jehovah Witnesses would read these verses. Oh, Jesus came back there in 19 whatever, in 1925, and they have so many dates. Come see, you know, he, he appears in the secret places. Jesus said then to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not say it. I didn't finish verse 21, and that's what most people wonder about. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Every New Ager I know, they, might know, they won't know diddly about the Bible, but they know this verse. And they'll quote, The kingdom of God is in you. You are all endued with Christ awareness and Christ consciousness, your higher self. That's the kingdom of God. It's in you. Well, what did Jesus mean? Look at the context. 
there was a group of leaders who looked for an outward display of the kingdom. These were the Jewish leaders. They expected an earthly, immediate kingdom. There was an expectancy, the historian Josephus tells us, at the time of Jesus, that another Moses would come. As Moses said, another prophet like me will come. And it was getting to be Passover. And every Passover, especially when the Romans were in charge, they looked to be delivered politically. They wanted a political Messiah. They wanted the fireworks, the outward display, you know, kick out the bad guys, bring in the guys with the white hats and the guns, clear out the Romans, get in charge. They wanted Jesus to demonstrate that. He said the kingdom of God doesn't come in outward observation. Now this is speaking of his first coming. His second coming will be markedly different, as he says. For the kingdom of God is within you. The emphasis is on you rather than within. And I think the language bears that out. The kingdom of God. Um, he baselia totheu. That's the kingdom of God. Uh, entos is in humon estin. In the midst of all of you. The idea is that the kingdom of God isn't within you each individually. But is within you because the king is among you. The idea is in the midst of you is the best translation. The king has come from heaven. That's Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is set up in the lives of his disciples who have abdicated their will to serve God. That's what he meant by that. Why is the kingdom in your midst? Because the king is in your midst. And wherever the king is in your midst, and there are people who bow their knee and their heart to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you find the seeds of the kingdom of God. Now, that's not the kingdom of God in its totality. As you go throughout history, eventually the kingdom of God will come in great power and glory. Revelation chapter 19, but that's for another episode. His idea is this. You guys are looking for the outward, the political. You are overlooking the simple fact that for three years I've been in your midst. The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here, look there. Do not go after them or follow them. I love that verse, and I obey it. So when they come knocking on my door and say, oh, we found the kingdom of God. I say, bye. Jesus said, don't follow them, don't go after them. Close the door. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. In other words, everybody's going to know about it. Oh, but Jesus came in the secret chambers back in 1925, the Jehovah Witnesses will say. Jesus said when he comes, it's going to be unmistakable. It's going to be like lightning that stretches from one end of the horizon to the other. It's visible to all. It's dramatic. It's not a secret. Imagine what that's going to be like. You ooh and you awe, and so do I whenever you see those balloons take off in October, right? Ooh, wow. Look at that. Look at that big beer can. <laughs> that shoe. Ooh. Camera. Or the 4th of July. Ooh, ah. Imagine when Jesus comes back and breaks the clouds. The trumpet sounds, and boom, you're in his presence. That'll be awesome. 
So the idea in verse 24 is that it will be universal. It will be very visible. How did Jesus leave? He left the earth. He was standing on the Mount of Olives and he started going up. He was ascending. And the disciples are there going, Ooh, oh. And the angel said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? The same Jesus will come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Well, he left on the Mount of Olives. He left physically and visibly, and he'll come back physically and visibly. And it won't be to a select few. Every eye shall see him, the Bible says. Matthew 24. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That day won't come yet. That day will come in Revelation 19. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, people will be doing business as usual. That's what they'll be like. They'll be mocking Christians who say, Jesus is coming soon. Just like when Noah was building that boat. Noah, what are you doing building a boat in the middle of the desert, dude? Judgment's going to come. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's going to rain and flood the world. Yeah, right. They just went around doing normal things, unaware the judgment was impending. It will be like that when the Son of Man comes. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But in the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Lot knew it was coming. Noah knew it was coming. The unbelievers did not. In that day, he who was on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. It's a Jewish context here. Matthew 24, and we've done so many studies on this, bears out that he's talking to about the Jews during the tribulation period. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in the night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. The idea is not the rapture here, though I do believe in the rapture, especially before the tribulation. But the idea, the context is judgment. One will be taken in judgment and the other will be left at that time. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Matthew 24 renders it a little bit differently. The vultures will be gathered together. And that is one translation of the Greek word translated here, eagles. It was a common Jewish saying. It could mean a lot of things, but it probably refers to the tribulation judgment. When the slain of the earth will be many. And it's explained in Revelation, I think, chapter 6, about the birds that will consume the flesh of the mighty men uh, during that time. Or it could mean simply, uh, well, it could mean a lot of different things, but that's pr probably the interpretation. Again, we've covered that in Matthew 24, and our time's about up. There are two events that we must not confuse. One is Jesus is coming for you as Christians. That is different from when Jesus comes as final judge at the second coming. 
The first one, called the rapture of the church, spoken about in 1 Thessalonians 5, the Greek word there is harpazo, which means to take something immediately by force, to snatch it away immediately. That's the idea of the rapture of the church. At that event, Jesus will not come to the earth. We will come from the earth and meet him in the clouds somewhere. We don't know where, what exactly where, but we'll meet him in the clouds and we will ever be with him. That event will be totally unexpected. In a day when you think not, the Son of Man comes. The other event is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. It's not in the clouds. It's all the way to the earth. It's on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will split in two. Every eye shall see him. And the Bible says, Revelation 19 and Jude and others, that Jesus comes with his saints. We will come with him at that event. And that is a predictable event. It is at the end of a judgment period known as the tribulation. In fact, days are enumerated in the book of Revelation so that if you were a well-learned, astute heathen during the tribulation period, you could count the days according to Revelation and you'd know the exact arrival of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But of the day and the hour of the rapture of the church, his coming for you knows no man. It's not predictable. And so we should be prepared. We should be ready. Are you ready? As we said at the beginning, are you packed and ready to go? Do you live life that way? Would you be really disappointed if Jesus decided to come tonight? Oh, but I've got plans for this weekend. <laughs> this is Labor Day weekend. <laughs> ah, but you've got a rest coming. It'll blow doors on Labor Day weekend. Or any vacation. As I read church history, in every revival of church history, the church believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They believed he could come at any time. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ to come. I'm not looking for the tribulation. Oh, yes, I'm ready to go through it. All Christians are going to go through it. No, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you can look for the Antichrist. You can have him. I'm not looking for him. I don't expect to ever see him on this earth. I'll get a bird's eye view of him. Now, I know that there's different positions. I, I, I don't want to knock the fact that some people believe in mid- or post-tribulation. You're not a heretic if you believe in them. You're inaccurate, but you're not a heretic. <laughs> I think to believe in anything else defies the very nature of God himself. Anyway, I'm looking forward. Father, we are grateful that we live in the days in which we live, which the Bible calls the last days. The last days. And Father, I pray as we consider the events that are happening around us, the wars, rumors of wars, increased activity and famine, all the things Jesus said would happen as those events would tick and wind to the very end. I pray, Lord, that we would be prepared, be ready to meet our Lord when he comes.
Father, I fear that there might be some who are not yet ready for that event. Who, like men and women in the days of Noah, are doing business as usual. Not really taking you seriously. Not really taking your promises seriously. Still married to the things of this world. Serving two masters. This world has a grip, a grasp on them. Lord, I pray that anyone who might be in earshot of this message tonight would be drawn into a personal relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ if they haven't done it yet. Before we close, the invitation goes out. If you're here tonight, and you would admit, I'm really not ready yet, we want you to get ready tonight. It comes by the surrender of your life to Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive your sins and receiving the life that he can give. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand up? I'll pray for you as we close this service. Raise it up and say, Skip, here's my hand. I want to give my heart to Jesus Christ tonight. I want to be born again. I want my sins forgiven. I want my name written in the book of life. I want to be ready. God bless you. You toward the back, way, way in the back, a couple of you. Anybody else? Now's the time. Today's the day. Don't put it off. God is speaking to your heart. The worst thing you can do is to shut your heart to his voice. God bless you. Anyone else? And you, ma'am. You in the back. Over to the side. Oh, Father, we're grateful for the work that you are doing right now in the hearts of these. Lord, it's, it's your work. You're the one doing it. These are your people. You're drawing them to yourself. Lord, I thank you for those that you have elected to salvation. Father, we pray for these who have raised their hands and indicated their need and desire to know and to serve you. I pray, Father, that You would make all things new and assure each one of your love, your forgiveness, and then begin to work and change each life. We know that you will because that's what you do. Wherever you are, if you raise your hand tonight in this auditorium, right now, say, Jesus, I give you my life. I admit I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sins. I thank you that Jesus died for me on that cross and shed his blood that I might live. I want to be your disciple and I surrender every part of my life to you, Lord, at this moment. Write my name in your book of life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.